Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we invite you to find your story within God's bigger story. We are a church that lives for something bigger than ourselves and is passionate to proclaim and demonstrate the way of Jesus. This fall, we are opening up the letter of 1 John. We believe it is a timely book in the life of the church. John is writing to a church that is divided over theological differences and confusion about how to follow Jesus in the midst of division. John's answer is love. God's love for us is immeasurable, and so our love for one another should be as well. It's a call to unity and care for one another in the midst of division. We're glad that you've joined us for this series. If you are interested in attending in person, our weekend services happen every week on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.30 a.m. One of the columns that I read every month is in a magazine called Christianity Today. It's called Go Figure. And it always leaves something to think about. This month, November, the column was entitled Sinning in the Rain. It's out of Duke University. They've recently published a study, Jonathan Moreno Medina. And what he's done is discovered uh, by, from data in 13, over 1,300 counties across the United States, he's discovered two very interesting things. First, in these counties, when it rains, church attendance goes down by 17%. Think about that. But the interesting correlation that he discovered was that in these counties, from nine o'clock to one o'clock, when it rains, the crime rate in those counties goes up between one to 2%. Now in each county, that's probably very minimal, maybe like one or two arrests. But when you account, put 1,300 counties in the mix, that's a lot of crime. Now, let me be clear, it's not a violent crime that goes up, murders or assaults. It's things like forgery, fraud, drug possession, uh, drunken driving, what's called white collar crime. So I'm reading this, and I don't know if your mind's blowing about this, right? Here's my first question. Well, if church attendance goes down by 17%, it's Christians, right, that are not going to church while the crime rate grows up. What in the world are we doing when we're not in church? Hmm. The Apostle John is actually going to answer that question for us and give us some input on what we need to be doing when we're not in church. But first, I want to frame this message, and you're probably tired of this frame. This is the second to last message uh, on our Measurable Love series from 1 John. Every week we've tried to remind you of one very important thing about the letter of 1 John, and it's this. John, a pastor for 50 years in a city called Ephesus in what is now Western Turkey, to various churches around the city, he's been saying, we need to come together. He's writing to a divided church. Now, in John's day, here was the division. What had happened was a movement had started in some of the churches that we now call Gnosticism from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge or enlightenment. And it was started by a man named Serinthus, whose writings you can still read. What Serinthus believed was that when it comes to Jesus, he was the son of Mary and Joseph, both physically. In other words, he was not God. He was just a man. 
But when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit came down on him, uh, lived in him, and gave him power to do miracles and enlightenment to do great teaching. And then sometime before Jesus went to the cross, the Spirit left him, and so it was just a man that died on the cross. Now, you understand this, right? This totally guts the gospel. Jesus was not fully God, fully man. Thus, he was not the unique mediator between God and people. He was just a man. So John takes action. I mean, he goes after this. We get a glimpse of it in 2 John, I think it's verse 7, when he says, look, if someone comes and they're trying to convert you to Gnosticism, to that kind of teaching that Jesus is not God, don't even let him into your house. So John, you know, fights like crazy against this false doctrine. And these people have left. But you can imagine John knowing these people, 50 years, their pastor. What is John going to say now to help a divided church that's had these fissures and fractures heal and recover? Here's what he's going to say. Now, I'm going to read this. It's going to be on the screen. You can follow along on your phones. First uh, John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. But here's an exercise while you listen while you read. Look for a word that appears 27 times as either a noun or a verb in these 14 verses, 27 times, because that's John's answer as to what a divided church needs. So we read, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There's no fear in love because perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother. The word of the Lord and sister, the word of the Lord. Now, beginning at verse 7 here, you need to know, and if you've read 1 John, that there's really nothing new now. 
that John is now cycling back and really hitting the one or two things he really wants his churches in Ephesus to remember. And the very first one, did you catch the word, by the way? Love. So in a divided church, they need, in a divided world, we need to show what should we be doing when we're not in church? Love. John says, love. You know, I have wondered in my imagination that when he's writing this, whatever the quill or the stylist puts it down and thinks back to when Jesus was with us and he walked with Jesus, I think of the, the Last Supper before when in John 13, remember before it started what Jesus did, he stood up and this is before he preached, this is before the cross, he took off his outer garments, wrapped a towel around his waist, knelt and washed the feet of, yes, Judas, yes, Peter, who denied him, he washed their feet, love. I think of John hearing the conversation between Peter and Jesus after the resurrection when Jesus and Peter have this conversation where essentially Jesus restores Peter to ministry, to leadership, love, love. What I'd like to talk about today is what's unique about this drill down of love is John's very concerned that the divided church in Ephesus and the divided church at Waterstone knows the source of love, that it's the primary attribute of God. So our big idea today together, what I want you to remember as you leave today is that the primary attribute of God is love and therefore, it needs to be the primary attribute of his church, of Waterstone, love. Let's talk about love being the primary attribute of God. You heard it in verse eight and in verse 16, this profound statement, this massive statement, God is love. I need to just confess to you, you know, Kat Chacon and Paul Jossen wrote the small group curriculum and they came across this quote from Jonathan Edwards uh, that we have hanging out in the hub out there, this really good quote that says, God's love is like an ocean without shore or bottom. What I'm trying to do today, and I think what any of us try to do when we try to talk about love of God, we're, we're trying to drain the ocean with a thimble. I feel so inadequate. But we need to talk about it. We need to reflect on love as a primary attribute of God. So let's follow John's lead and let's talk about the love of God. First, you have to notice the profound language. He says, God is love. So what he's not saying is that God is loving or, you know, like God is merciful, God is gracious, all these adjectives of love, but when, or I mean of uh, God that describe him, but when it comes to love, John says, no, it's higher than that. It's more than that. It's not just that God is loving. God is love. Come with me on this. That means every attribute of God, his holiness, his graciousness, his mercy, his omniscience, his omnipresence, all, all of that is conditioned by love. 
and comes to us through love. And all of his actions are conditioned by his love. Even, yes, his justice, his judgment, and his jealousy are all because God is love. So if you think of God and your first thought is not God is love, then you do not yet have a fully formed view of God. Because God is love. Everything he does is love. Everything, his actions are love. It's central to who he is. So John, with the language, grabs our attention and says, first thing, God is love. And he's love because he's the source of love. In verses 9 and 10, you get to see this little hint of the Trinity when it says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son. There's this idea of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit living together from all eternity in a divine community of love. So something very important here that we need to meditate on, it's this. God did not make us because he was lonely. God did not make us because he needed something more in his life. God did not make us because his joy was incomplete, because he had no one to love, because he was just bored. God has lived in divine love for all of eternity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, first family community. So you know what that means, right? That means that you and I are not essential. We are not necessary. And that's a good thing, right? Because if we were necessary and God had to love us, well, that's not really love now, is it? Love is a choice, an act of the will. And God chose to make us so that he could invite us into his divine family where we would live with him forever. Listen, God does not love you because you're cute. God does not love you because you're smart. God does not love you because of your winsome personality. God does not love you because you're important. God loves you because he is love. It's his choice, and nothing you can do will make him love you more. He loves, and he loves you. You are his choice. God is love. He's the source of love. Third part of this meditation on his love I want to call out from the text is that this love is defined. He says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The defin- now, this is blurry in our culture, right? Love is a blurry word in our culture. Love to some people means just emotion and feelings. To others, it means sex and apocalyptic romance. To others, it means whatever gives pleasure, whatever gives happiness. Love is love, our culture says. God says, no, here's love. This is love. Agape, that word that appears 27 times, it means giving of yourself to do what's good for another person. Now, It goes deeper than that. Not that we loved God, 
So the full definition of love is giving of yourself for the good of another person, even when we have differences. God loved us when we didn't care that he existed. God loved us when we didn't know him. God loved us when we didn't want him. So this is the definition of love. It's the giving of ourselves for the good of others, and this is particular for our divided church in 2021, even for those with whom you have differences. Love. God is love, massive statement. He's the source of love from the divine trinity. He is the definition of love and the giving. And the depth of that love is the giving of his son to be an atoning sacrifice. John says this twice in his, this letter, 2, 2 and 4, 10. It's the only time in the New Testament appears. It's really, really important. It's the idea, what John wants us to see is to go back to Leviticus back to Exodus and remember the day of atonement when the priest would carry the blood of the lamb into the holy holies where only he could go on one day of year for just a moment, rope wrapped around his ankle in case the holiness of God struck him dead because in this current situation, we don't have the holy fitness to be in God's presence. He would sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the cover of the ark that called the mercy seat. And in that blood, we know that in order for us to be forgiven and have our guilt removed because of our sins, a perfect lamb had to die. In order to satisfy God's justice, in order to remove our guilt, death had to happen. And Jesus is not only the priest who brings us to God, Jesus is the lamb who absorbs God's wrath into himself and offers his life as the sacrifice. Do you hear what I'm saying? That the most loving thing we can do for another person is to forgive them. Love. God is love. He's the source of all love from the divine trinity. He is the definition of love, giving of ourselves, even when we have differences. And the depths of that love, it cost his son, and it cost the son his life. But he did that because he loves us, and he wanted to take our sins out of the middle so that we could have fellowship with him. That's love. Now, I want to just pause here before we talk about the big idea, right? Is that because God is love, we love one another. That's where we're going, but hold on for one second because I want to just reflect on what blocks love from our lives, his love. I think the first thing that I've observed over decades now of walking with this congregation, the first way that we kind of block God's love in our lives is from pain, Right? We get into seasons of life where our health goes, where we lose loved ones, where job stress, money stress, things get in front of us that are deeply, deeply hard, and we begin to wonder, does God care? Does he love me? If he loved me, I can't understand why this is happening. What I wanna say, well, not me. I think this is John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, 
saying what we need to do in those moments of our lives is not look ahead and say, boy, God, if you love me, you'll take this stuff away. No promises there. I think what John says, and he said it twice in the letter, is you've got to go back. Atoning sacrifice. You've got to go to the cross. The cross says that God has already displayed how much he loves you. How much he's willing to do for you, he's done. And that he's always with you. It's the cross. When in pain, when in pain, we go to the cross to experience his love. A book we have in our bookstore, and in fact, a book that Paul Joslin and Melissa Fuller, who oversee our pastoral care, they send to every grieving person in our church when they lose a loved one. It's called A Grace Disguise by Gerald Sitzer. Gerald Sitzer was a college professor at Whitworth University in Washington. And in a moment, a drunk driver, they were going home from an event, crossed the median, high rate of speed, and in the van uh, was his mom, I mean, yeah, Jerry's mom, Jerry's wife, and his four children. Within minutes after the impact, Jerry held his mother while she died, held his wife while she died, and held his youngest daughter while she died. This book is his journal of how he survived the first three years of that immense loss. And one passage that I've never forgot And this is for those in this room in grief. This is because today in a moment we're going to go to the communion table. This is what Gerald Sitzer writes about the love of God. The incarnation that Jesus came to be one of us means that God cares so much that he chose to become human and suffer loss, though he never had to. I have grieved long and hard and intensely, but I have found comfort knowing that the sovereign God who is in control of everything is the same God who has experienced the pain I live with every day. No matter how deep in the pit to which I descend, I keep finding God there. He is not aloof from my suffering, but draws near when I suffer. He is vulnerable to pain, quick to shed tears, and acquainted with grief. God is a suffering sovereign who feels the sorrow of the world. The incarnation has left a permanent imprint on me. For three years now, I have cried at every communion service I have attended. I have not only brought my pain to God, but also felt as never before the pain God suffered for me. I mourned before God because I know that God has mourned too. In our pain, we go to the God of love, but it's through the cross. The other block of love that I've observed over the years is that people have a hard time experiencing the love of God when they're in sin, when they sin. 
They walk into this room week after week, dragging a ball and chain of shame. Sin and shame. Gary Burge taught New Testament at Wheaton College, a Christian college. One time he gave an assignment to a New Testament class to write a one-page essay on whether or not your faith has been formed from whenever you met Jesus by an image of God as displeased with you and angry at you or by an image of God as the loving and forgiving father. 36 out of the 40 students said that the primary shaping image of God for them has been an angry, displeased God. In fact, one of the students wrote this. I feel like God punishes me for sins all the time. I feel that there is always something I'm being punished for. I know that that is impossible because there are not enough minutes in the day for God to punish us. I probably should not call it punishment, but that is the way I feel about God's justice. I know of God's love and blessing for me, and for that I am eternally grateful and thankful, but I live with this fear that one mess up and I will be punished again. A gully of guilt, a, 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 a stream of shame that many of us carry week by week. And John would say the same thing to those in pain. He would say the same thing to those in shame. You have to go to the cross. To illustrate that, I want to go back to the Old Testament, to a story that we know as the story of David. David is the most extensively detailed story in the Old Testament. In fact, we know more and there are more words written about David than there are uh, about any other character in the Bible except Jesus. The David story is an amazing story because you get into it and you think, oh wow, you know, Goliath, yeah, all that. But you keep reading and you think, holy cow, this guy was a scoundrel. He was a wreck. He abused his power to have one of his best soldiers killed because he didn't want to get caught in an affair. He forced that woman to have the affair with him. The, he, he was a terrible father. His kids despised him. And you think, it says in the story, he's a man after God's own heart. And you think, what? A man after God's own heart? He's a barbaric chieftain with a knack for poetry. You're telling me this is the guy, the man after God's own heart? Wow. Here's the thing. You need to take this home and think about it. At first, it may really offend you, but I think this is what offended people who heard Jesus. Listen to me. The most important task in the Christian life is not to avoid sin. We can't do it anyhow. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't try. I'm not saying we shouldn't live like Jesus. We, that's the great challenge of life. But it's not our primary task to avoid sin. Do you know what our primary task is? To recognize sin. To bring it out into the open. To pry its grip of shame off our heart, which shame has shelled out. It is to Name it to God, and this is where it's really hard for us, to others, to our friends, to call out 
and recognize our sin because when that happens, forgiveness flows. That's what we need from the cross, forgiveness. Not long after David committed this sin with Bathsheba and had her husband killed, his pastor confronted him. And this is why David had a heart after God's is because whenever he was confronted with his sin, whenever it was recognized, he said, I have sinned against God. And his heart would snap back into the grace posture, the mercy posture. And months after he wrote this song, he recognized his sin and brought it out in the open. He wrote this song that we know as Psalm 51. Here are the first seven verses of it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from all my sin. David is walking in the cross. He goes on, I know my transgressions, my sins always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop. What does that mean? Hyssop was what they put the blood of the lamb over the doorframe in the Passover. Cleanse me with hyssop under the blood and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Do you know in this song it goes on, there's only four words in the Hebrew language that describe sin. Sin is as boring as the summer reruns. There's 19 words in this psalm that tell us what God does with our sins. He cleanses us, he washes us, hyssop, all these words. I'm telling you, here, those of you struggling with shame right now, you need to fight to keep the main event the main event. And the main event is not your sin. The main event is what God does with your sin. It's gone. It does not separate you. So stop trying to double down and say in secret, I'll just keep trying harder. Recognize your sin. Give it to God. Get a friend involved and experience the forgiveness. So the primary attribute of God is love. That means the primary attribute of the church needs to be love. And I just wanna say a few words about this because we really need to get to the communion table. First is this, when you talk about the primary attribute of the church being love, there are two benefits. First is this, and it's in these verses uh, seven, 11, Look at all these verses. What happens when we love our brothers and sisters? Well, we're reminded that we have been born of God. We're reminded that we know God. We're reminded that he lives in us and that he's given us his spirit. We're reminded that uh, he loves us. Uh, All these verses that talk about us loving others in this text, listen. You're feeling doubts about your salvation, feeling weak in faith, feeling like questioning. The best thing you can do to build assurance in your heart is to love other sisters and brothers. That's what will make your faith firmer and fitter. That's what will remind you that the Spirit lives in you. That's what will remind you that you've been born again. 
The way that you love your sisters and brothers is the way to gain assurance in your faith. Wow. Wrestle with that. You're feeling weak in your faith today? You think, oh, I gotta go home and read the whole book of Leviticus just so I can get back with God. No, no. Yeah, yeah. that sounded like Keith Swirtley. Keith would do that, but. <laughs> do you know one of the best ways you can build your faith is by your actions of loving other sisters and brothers. Second benefit is in verses 11 and 12, and this is just profound. John says, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Think about that for a moment. Jesus came, sent by the Father to bring the love, died on the cross, but that love is not complete until it comes through us to others. Whoa! We are an essential ingredient in the strategy that God wants to do to love the world. Hmm. The hard part right now, and let's talk about it, God, John's words to a divided church. A hard part right now is that the church, and I say capital C church, but Waterstone has had it, our own struggles with this as well. I think what's happening right now is that the church has elevated issues about politics and issues about pandemic, what we'll call P squared, pandemic and politics. <laughs> we have elevated those beliefs to the level of doctrine and we dig our feet in and we won't budge and we, we just think this is the most important thing, even as important as Jesus. And so we'll blow up our small group will leave churches, will have issues within our own loving family. It will blow things apart. You have seen it and I have seen it. We've elevated, and I'm sorry, non-essential belief to the positions of ultimate belief and we've ripped the church apart. And so the church which holds God as love and has supposed to have the primary attribute of love, and the world's saying, where is it? I'm not seeing it. Mike Mason had the best quote on it. He put it this way. The church is dying for lack of love. The world is dying for lack of church. Say, so, okay, Larry, what, what are you really saying here? Here's what I'm saying. That whether or not you have a same position on vaccines with another sister or brother in Christ, whether or not you have the same position on masks, whether or not you believe God's truth is in this party or that party or this president or that president, we need to transcend those beliefs by a common belief in Jesus Christ. And for those with whom we disagree, here's what we need to do. I can't spell it any more clearer than this. It's in 1 Corinthians 13. Here's what you need to anticipate in another sister or brother with whom you disagree on anything regarding politics or pandemic. Here it is. Here's what you need to do. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. 
It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Last week, we interviewed a potential worship candidate, a young fellow in his 20s. I like to ask the question in the interview, share with us a time when you've had conflict with another staff person or a volunteer in the worship ministry. And tell me about one that worked and tell me about one that didn't work. Well, this kid blew me away because what he said was this, whenever I'm going into a conflict to have a face-to-face conversation, before I walk in, I take just a moment and I hold back and I try to imagine how God feels about this person who I hate right now. I try to experience the joy that God has in this person before I go in and have this conflict. Then trying to understand and anticipate God's joy, I'll go and have the hard conversation. That's it. You say, how in the world do we do that? How in the world do you get a heart like that? Well, if you're here and you love Jesus, you already have that heart. You have it. The Spirit's in you. Your heart's been transformed. You just need to preach the gospel to yourself a little bit. Right? You just need to think again, man, I am so sinful beyond imagination, but Jesus loved me so much that he came and lived the life I should have lived, died the death I should have died, because he wants me to live in the divine family forever. You preach that to yourself. You preach that his blood shed for you will never fail you. It will never fail you. It will never separate you from God. It will always hold you close to him. His blood will never fail you. And knowing that confidence, you can move towards others, even when you have differences, because his blood will never fail them either. That's what brings us together.